This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. Mark Dolan is here and the pathetic attacks on Rishi Sunak's wealth turned personal today after revelations about his wife's totally legal tax status. So Akshatar Murthy, an Indian citizen, has non-domiciled status, meaning she legitimately doesn't pay UK tax on her foreign income, largely earned from shares in her father's software company. It's all 100% above board. And it was all declared when Rishi became a minister in 2018. But Labour and the craven left-wing media, some on the right too, I have to be honest, couldn't resist spitefully weaponising the Sunak's family wealth. Labour demanded the Chancellor urgently explain his wife's tax affairs, while Shadow Economic Secretary to the Treasury, Tulip Sadiq, described the arrangement as staggering. What's staggering to me is that we're using the wealth and financial success of our Chancellor as a stick to beat him with. Mark Dolan, uh, great to have you here. Why are the left so opposed to successful people thriving at the heart of government? Well, Dan, there's an old saying, which is no one kicks a dead dog. The bottom line is Labour feel very threatened by Rishi Sunak because we currently have a prime minister who's the most uh, popular and successful, charismatic politician of his generation, Boris Johnson, and waiting in the wings to replace Boris when he decides to uh, quit will be Rishi Sunak, who is the most talented generation of his politician. Honestly, um, the idea of a handing of power from Boris eventually to Rishi Sunak is Labour's worst nightmare. You could have 10 or 15 years worth of conservative governments between the two men. So Labour hate Rishi Sunak. He's a huge threat to them. And it's very sexist because they've gone after his wife. Now, last time I checked, Dan, uh, Akshata Murti was not the chancellor. She's the chancellor's wife. And it's very, very sexist to think that somehow her money is his money. As you pointed out, she's not broken any rules. Rishi Sunak himself is a self-made man, a millionaire, made his cash in the city. And his wife comes from a very successful Indian family. The income that she enjoys tax-free from her non-DOM status is from shares in an Indian software company that her father created. Nothing has been done that was illegal. She's not a tax evader. Um, She comes from an accomplished family. Rishi Sunak is a winner and Labour hate it. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, Mark? Because we have a prime minister in power at the moment who, yes, is brilliant on so many levels. I, I completely agree. And, you know, I've, on the whole, uh, lockdown aside, been a supporter of Boris Johnson. However, one of the issues is, Mark, is that he's got financial issues, personal financial issues, and yeah. it worries him. He's got lots of kids he needs to support, and he can't make the money that he very easily could if he wasn't prime minister. So sometimes his attention might be focused elsewhere because he's got to pay the bills. And how insane that we have the most important person in the country worried about paying the bills. That's not the case with Rishi Sunak. He has so much money. He never has to worry about anything other than his job as chancellor, which I think you could actually look at as quite a positive thing. Well, that's right. I mean, Rishi Sunak was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Yes, his wife Mm -hmm. is minted. Um, His father was a GP. His mother was a pharmacist. In fact, he did the accounts for his mum's pharmacy when he was 16. Um, This guy clawed his way uh, up to the top of the city. And I want people like that running the country, Dan. I want uh, the calibre of Rishi Sunak in government because he's proved it in the private sector. He's smart. He's accomplished. 
He's energetic. Um, and, and I think he's the future. So, you know, that's why Labour have worked so hard to have a go at this guy. I think he should be flattered by the attention. And I don't think the public will be fooled, will be fooled by this politics of envy, Dan, because that's what it is. Um, if you listen to Labour, being rich is a crime. Do you remember when Keir Starmer attacked Boris Johnson at the dispatch box for having a WhatsApp relationship with James Dyson, the billionaire uh, founder of Dyson? And this was whilst uh, whilst we were trying to get our hands on ventilators early in the pandemic. And somehow the, the thrust of Keir Starmer's criticism was that was that you know, Boris Johnson was, was you know, having messages and having a relationship with someone that happened to be filthy rich. Well, I want our prime minister talking to billionaires. Billionaires are the most accomplished people in our society. We enjoy the tax income that they generate and we enjoy their expertise. And long may that continue. No, in, indeed, I completely agree. But some of the attacks, Mark, it has to be said, are coming from the centre-right. So we had Claire Foges, former speechwriter for David Cameron, saying that, in her opinion, Rishi Sunak is just too rich to be prime minister. She says it's OK to be a little bit rich, sort of millionaire rich, but multi-millionaire rich? No, the British public won't have it. I, I just think this underestimates the British public. It patronises us. It makes us sound really small-minded that we just couldn't bear the idea that somebody very independently wealthy was in power. The bottom line is, I repeat, that if Rishi Sunak becomes prime minister, then he'll be a wealthy prime minister who made it in the city. It's his wife who is the heir to a billion a billion pound fortune. It's not him. And we live in the modern world. It's 2022. And husbands and wives have their own financial interests. You know, we don't live in the era of joint bank accounts. Uh, that's just not how it works anymore. Um, these people are high flyers. And I, I, honestly, I think the British people predominantly are very aspirational. I think most people watching your brilliant show, Dan, are people that want to make the best of their lives. And they work very, very hard for their families. And if they can aspire to more, they will. Look how Margaret Thatcher expanded the aspirations of this country in the 1980s by letting people buy their council houses, by letting them start businesses, creating a low tax environment in which to thrive. We had an economic boom in 1987. And, you know, that was the flavour of Britain in the 80s. And I think the likes of Sunak would like to bring that back. I will say, Dan, that the halo has slipped slightly for Rishi. You know I've oh, been yeah. his biggest supporter. And you I've have. actually called for him. I've called for him to get the top job at number 10. And when yeah, Boris That's not that, looking so good now, be. Mark. It's not looking so good it's, now. It's aged, it's aged as badly as I have. But the thing is, <laughs> I, I, I do stand by. I stand by uh, my, my support of, of Sunak. But, but I think that he's been naive at times. I think the staged photo call at a Sainsbury's petrol pump uh, filling up a red Kia that didn't even belong to him was silly. And actually, that that's patronising to the British people. And he shouldn't he shouldn't be indulging in that kind of Instagram uh, photo op stuff. He's supposed to be a grown up politician. Yeah. That wasn't great. Uh, and of course, he is now the tax raising Tory chancellor. And I think that would be far more damaging uh, than this sort of soap opera around his own wife's bank balance. Yes. Well, Mark, I I'm not singling you out here. But all I'm going to say is I think some of the people who called on Boris Johnson to go uh, did it in haste. And I think I've seen the way that he has performed over this Ukraine crisis and thought, actually, he's the man uh, who deserves the job, which he, of course, won in a landslide election. So I've criticised Boris a lot, but I do back him to stay as prime minister. Well, do you know what very I, you know positive I'd say to moves that, over trans rights, for example? Absolutely. Listen, Dan, you know, what I said days after my uh, desire for Sunak to come in was that Boris is going the right way about proving me wrong.
And if I could be wrong about Boris, I'll be the happiest man in England. And Mark, 20 seconds, but you're here the next three nights. You know I'll be watching. What can I look forward to? Oh, listen, we've got so many big debates. Uh, we're going to talk about sex at the weekend, actually. Oh, no, please <laughs> don't. What? Yes, I'm afraid so, yes. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very racy, our programme. Oh, so my God. So we'd like to keep an eye on that. Uh, also, should we bring... I hope Anne Whittaker isn't watching, Mark. <laughs> and starring in it. Oh, don't. Don't. You're making me want to tune out. But, of course, Mark, I will be here, Mark Dolan, next three nights at nine o'clock. First, she got her claws into Prince Harry and her feet under the royal table. Now Meghan Markle. She's trying to hijack the English language, believe it or not. The Hollywood celebrity, we're still meant to call the Duchess of Sussex for some unknown reason, has applied to the US Patent Office to trademark the word archetypes, which is also the name of her upcoming and sure to be infuriating Spotify podcast. Now, the word derives from Greek and has been used in the English language for 470 years. But of course, the wannabe Hollywood star thinks it would be best placed attached to her simpering brand. She wants it to be applied to goods and services related to, quote, the fields of cultural treatment of women and stereotypes facing women. However, she could face legal challenges from brands that already use the word in their names. Well, joining me now to break down this utter nonsense is the Daily Telegraph star columnist Celia Walden, who says the Sussex's self-absorption and narcissism is now flagrant enough to be tiresome even to their most tireless critics. And let me tell you, I'm one of them, Celia, I have to be completely honest. And you're not far from Harry and Meghan right now. I mean, do people over there take them more seriously than we do here now? No. Well, I should say, so yes, I'm currently in LA and um, I was just saying to a friend of mine out here that uh, uh, when I first came back here after the pandemic, I was sort of expecting, I thought maybe, well, Megan's one of their own, you know, maybe they're quite protective of her or defensive, but not at all. Um, She's just a figure of fun out here, you know, and and what the crucial misstep that she made is forgetting that um, in California, people, and in the whole of the US, in fact, people love the Queen. And so anyone who's been deemed to, you know, have, have sort of affronted the Queen or behaved badly in that regard is just uh, is just not going to go down well. That's interesting, actually. Megan, is this is, is, is this, uh, this the type of thing, Celia, that people do over there, though, try and claim a word? Because you remember Posh Spice tried to do it once back in her heyday and was very quickly found out. Found out, I know, and it was, and there was some sort of ludicrous legal um, uh, sort of battle around it, wasn't it? Which is where things get very embarrassing. Um, I mean, this it, this is just—it's been unanimously agreed that this is a preposterous thing to do, and in fact, the only thing that she should be trademarking is possibly well, a few words. Maybe she could trademark arrogant, uh, <laughs> entitled, um, and uh, preposterous, because uh, all of those things are uniquely her. But this this has been around for a while as a word, um, and uh, but it but it is it's just so archetypal of her of her <laughs> sort of narcissism, isn't it? It just the idea that you can own a word. Why not try and own the Parthenon while you're at it? You know, it's it's just a sort of. Uh, um, but uh, but the, but I do think we've now reached a point where even though I never cease to be amazed when these stories come up, and you, you would think by now that we would get used to it, um, I'm I, I never stop being surprised at how badly um, both of them really have messed up 
you know, what could have been a real, uh, a really sort of easy win for them. Exactly. There's almost, Celia, this gross commercialization of everything they do. And why yes. do they need to go down that path? They're being paid tens of millions of bucks by Netflix, tens of millions of bucks by Spotify. They have the deal with the bank. It feels yes. like it's never enough for them. No. And the other thing that I think it is going to be a problem is that the, all of this at the moment is bluster and hot air and mm. sort of grandstanding. And actually, think about it. This deal, um, this Spotify deal was done in 2020, supposedly for 18 million, which is a huge amount of money. But at some stage, they're going to have to deliver the goods. So, you know, all this sort of protection and, and sort of creation talk of it, sort of big talk of creating brands and exactly what's going to happen. But what have we actually seen? What have they produced yeah. at the moment? You well, know, it's so, no so far for Spotify, they've produced about 20 minutes of content. It right. was utterly awful. And yes. I don't know about you, but I have absolutely zero interest in listening to Megan talk to other famous celebrity women moaning about how tough their life is when I think she has the most privileged life that any human being could possibly have. Well, it, by any yardstick, she does, and uh, and so you know this this she's going to have to rebrand herself at some point. A, she's going to have to actually produce the goods. So you know it's no good building a castle around your assets um, with all these legal situations if you don't have any assets. You know, just first of all, show people what you can do because otherwise these these companies are gonna they'll they'll drop them because there you know there comes a point where the royal name is not enough. Um, and um, and secondly, I think she really needs to step away from from the whinging because it's not it's not going to serve her well. Well, that's the thing, Celia. I think about it, and actually, she has rebranded. She's rebranded as a victim. That's yeah. how she wants yeah. to be viewed, and I well, find it so bizarre. But that, I mean, that is a cultural, that is a cultural thing where there is, you know, victimhood is not only, not only provides status, but it provides a, a lot of cash. You know, mm. there's, it, it's a business opportunity. So wherever she sees victimhood at the moment, she's right on that. I know, it's, it's, it's completely fascinating to me. Of course, at the same time, she also has this deal with Netflix. Netflix in the headlines this week because there's a very negative documentary about Prince Charles and his relationship with Jimmy Savile. Of course, that is a legitimate journalistic project. However, what I would say, Celia, is it's very interesting, isn't it? Meghan and Harry are so keen to speak up against Joe Rogan and Spotify, against tabloid newspapers who they don't like, against social media but they won't say a thing when their own employer seems to constantly want to gun for their own relatives. Yes, I think where morality and sort of ethics are concerned, both of those things tend to fly out the window where there's enormous sort of quantities of dollar signs uh, from what we've seen so far. Uh, and again, you know, you don't have to be uh, even critical of them to see that. So, so what I've noticed is a lot of people who were 
very much sort of backing them um, and uh, and defending Meghan particularly, for example, have now given up and said, look, I really didn't want to be one of those Meghan bashers because I thought they were awful, but actually I can't I can't fight it anymore. Um, and uh, and you know it's a because what this is because this is what her she's got eleven companies or they've now got eleven companies, which, which what are, what are they all doing these companies? What are they producing? I'm fascinated. So you get this image of her behind some like some sort of bond you know villain with a white cap with all the in in her montecito mansion but you know what are you very very busy busy but do it show us what you're producing then so it's, so it's interesting celia you do think the tide is turning in the u.s against the sussexes I do. And actually, I, I wrote a column uh, after the Oscars talking about what, which I d thought actually, no, after the BAFTAs, sorry, um, about how how fascinating that was that that um, mm. Rebel made that joke. Uh, and and that what, you know, normally one would expect these are these are sort of their people, don't forget. So normally one would expect a bit of a sharp intake of breath or maybe even booing, but not at all. It was unanimous laughter um, because they are now officially, um, you know, figures of fun. And I think that uh, is going to be most upsetting to her because it's because it's it's the furthest thing that she wants. They will be seething in the Montecito <laughs> mansion, Celia. I hope you bump into them and... Uh... Give them some tough words in Hollywood. That would be nice to keep us posted. That's Star Daily Telegraph columnist and best-selling author Celia Ward. And Celia, it's so lovely to speak to you. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Now, the victimhood-obsessed left would have you believe Britain's schools are centres of oppression for this country's ethnic minorities. But a bombshell new report shows that, au contraire, non-white school children are actually far happier and more academically confident than their faltering white peers. A Department of Education survey of almost 9,000 families found pupils from Indian, Chinese, Pakistani, Bangladeshi and black African backgrounds achieve on average far better GCSE grades than their white British counterparts and they're bullied less too. Ethnic minority parents also had a far more positive perception of their children's well-being than white parents and they were more likely to encourage their children to take A-levels. And last year, an education committee report revealed that less than 18% of white British kids eligible for free school meals achieved a strong pass in English and maths GCSEs compared to 22.5% of disadvantaged pupils from other ethnic groups. That equates to nearly 40,000 white working class children missing out. So, will the left now finally accept that Britain's education system is not institutionally racist? Ripke Bassan joins me now. Rakeem, your take. Well, my take is that the, the narrative that Britain's systems are deliberately rigged against its racial and ethnic minorities, that miserable grievance fueled narrative is crumbling. Done. That's the truth of it. This new government report shows that ethnic minority pupils are more academically confident. Um, their parents are more likely to encourage them to take on A-levels. Their pupils 
uh, ethnic minority pupils are less likely to be bullied. And you talked about the average attainment eight scores there, attainment eight, average attainment eight scores. Those are pupils' results over eight GCSE level qualifications. Uh, when compared to the white British mainstream, pupils of Chinese, Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani and black African origin um, outperform their white British peers. That doesn't sound like an education system which is deliberately rigged against racial and ethnic minorities. And it certainly doesn't sound like our schools across the country are hubs of racial victimisation. But no one in the mainstream media wants to talk about this, do they, Rakeem? And we saw from the Sewell report that any time there's any suggestion that Britain isn't institutionally racist, our elites don't like it. They just want to go, no. no absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's absolutely remarkable. And, and the reality is that you have the left now who at one time would have championed positive forms of integration among racial and ethnic minorities. Yes. They're now looking to conceal that because they want to protect their precious white privilege narratives. And what they're ultimately looking to do is hide forms of ethnic minority non-white success, but also very severe forms of underprivilege within the white British mainstream. And Rakib, uh, we also, let's be honest, need to start talking about white working class kids and what we're going to do to help them. But again, that doesn't fit the narrative, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and the, the reality is, if you're talking about disadvantage and underprivilege, some of the most disadvantaged communities, left behind communities in Britain, are predominantly white British. They're socially atomized, um, culturally marginalized, materially deprived. So I think that we really, when we're looking at social policy, when we're looking at educational outcomes, we need to talk more about family structure, Dan. We need to talk about the health of our local communities. Do those local communities that young people live in, does it provide them with a sense of belonging and rootedness? And I think instead of um, obsessing over protected characteristics such as race, ethnicity, um, religious belief, we need to focus more on what are the kind of social networks, what are the kind of family structures that our young people oh, belong indeed. to when we're looking I at school attainment. I completely agree with that, Rakib, but all I would say is that if this survey had found the opposite results mm. and had found that ethnic minorities were far less successful in schools rather than white working class kids, it would be leading the BBC News. It would be leading ITV News. It would be the front page of The Guardian. And that hypocrisy has to be called out. Oh, it has to be. It is deeply hypocritical. And this comes to my point, though, that our mainstream liberal institutions, they can't find it within themselves to celebrate forms of ethnic minority success. Exactly. Because ultimately they're involved in the sustaining of these narratives, which ultimately portrays Britain as a fundamentally racist society. Yeah, because that's what they want people to believe. Uh, Rakeem Hassan, fascinating analysis as ever. You wrote a great spiked online column about this, which I really recommend people do check out. Thank you so much, Rakeem. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hold up. 